If you were exchanged in the cradle and your real mother died without ever telling the story, then no one knows your name. And somewhere in the world your father is lost and needs you, but you are far away. He can never find how true you are, how ready. When the great wind comes and the robberies of the rain, you stand on the corner shivering. The people who go by, you wonder at their calm. They miss the whisper that runs any day in your mind. Who are you really, wanderer? And the answer you have to give, no matter how dark and cold the world around you is, maybe I'm a king. That was A Story That Could Be True by William Stafford, who was the mentor of Robert Bly, great forefigure in the forefather in the mythopoetic movement, and... Yeah, someone that pops up a lot in this beautiful, poetic, mm, very life-giving and reminding conversation with dear brother Ash Packman here in Melbourne. We've been swimming around each other for quite a while, have shared many, or have shared a couple of brilliant conversations, each one really enlivening. And so we sat together and, and this is the conversation, exploring the, I suppose, the, the utility, the the depth of living, of resouling, of restoring, of restoring the world that a mythopoetic orientation might offer us in this time and exploring what, what happens when we take out the mythos from a life, from a community, from hmm, a collective such as us humans and, and where do we end up? How do we treat the world? How do we live with the world when the mythos, the mythopoetic has been stripped and we live in a world oriented purely or valuing purely rationale, logic, a mechanistic way of being in the world. And so we explore what the mythopoetic really offers us. And we speak about this in great detail in terms of the men's work movement um, in healing masculinity. That's where much of our relationship began between Asher and myself, the intersection of queerness and integrated masculinity and what is it that we're really aiming for, attempting for in the men's work movement, but more broadly beyond manhood, humanhood, what does a mythopoetic lens offer us in our own journey of coming home to ourselves, of restoring wholeness in ourselves, restoring it in the world. And as Michael Mead said, to restore the world, we have to restory the world. We have to bring myth back into our very way of living with ourselves in the world. Beyond self-help, we need mythos. And so we explore that in great depth we explore poetry what does it mean to write to experience poetry to be in conversation with poetry if we are to build a relationship with the mythos and the mythic dimensions of our human lives then what does it mean how can we relearn and remember how to actually read and receive poetry and mythos uh, as a totally for many can be and I know for me in the beginning quite a foreign way of receiving information very heart-based, very, you know, beyond simply the part of ourselves that we think resides above our shoulders in this little cranium. And so what does it mean to receive, to write poetry and as a way of restoring our relationship with mythos? I could keep going and going. There's just so much in here. It's so deep. And I've been deep in writing a paper on Eros and moving beyond psychology to soul-making uh, and so that definitely showed up a lot in this conversation as well. So I trust that you will, yes, enjoy and feel kind of 
provoked in many ways through this conversation. And I hope that it does spur on some reflection for you. And do know that we are and I am here with you. And so if anything does does emerge for you in your process after listening, then please do reach out. Uh, and I'm here to be in reflection and process with you. So enjoy. Grab a tea, take a breath. Notice the inhale, the exhale, and the space between. A moment in between moments. Here you are. You're listening to Spaces Between with your friend and host, Al Jeffrey. An open exploration into restoring connection in the 21st century, in our personal lives, our relationships, and our communities. What does it mean to live in relationship to the wholeness of who we are together? My guess is that you're somewhat like me and that you feel the impact of a great disconnect in a very real, a very personal, and a very collective way. And they also feel the call, the invitation to participate in what Joanna Macy calls the great turning, to restore relationship, wholeness, and connection, and to support the regeneration of consciousness and culture, all in service to weaving the child's Eisenstein calls the, the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. I'm also going to guess that you're already doing this work in your very own way, so thank you. And Spaces Between is really a platform and a community-building tool for an open inquiry into these questions to support you, to support me, and to support us in this very remembering of who we are together. Maybe how can we queer our minds? How can we de-domesticate, rewild our minds and restore a relational way of being with ourselves and with each other? And to renew a culture that tends to the whole from the inside out. That's what we're here for, my friends. Now, I'm not one for ads and am one, though, for creating something beautiful with others, in this case, you. So I do invite you to be part of the magic. If you enjoy our time together, if you gain nourishment from these conversations, and make sure to subscribe Spotify and Apple Podcasts and rate the show and even leave a review. Leaving a rating or written review on Apple Podcasts really helps those who stumble across the show to choose to lean in and try an episode and drink from these waters. It also really helps enroll the next juicy guest that we're going to have on the show. So do go ahead and leave a written review and definitely rate on Apple Podcasts if you can. And if you're feeling super generous and fueled and filled up by our conversations, you might even consider donating or soon joining my community membership. You can head over to www.spacesbetweenpodcast.com for all of that, all of the show notes and lots more. For now, this is it. Let's dive in. Ash, so nice to be sitting across from each other again, albeit virtually this time round. Um, so thanks for joining for a convo. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. You know, I, I really enjoyed the last time we had an opportunity to catch up sitting by the water and um, mm -hmm. really glad to hopefully even continue a little where we left off. Yeah, there was some, which was definitely the impetus for this conversation and to, to be doing it with microphones and recording. I definitely left with many threads of inspiration and further questions, which I very much enjoy. And I just really uh, appreciate it. And I felt to note the, I suppose our approach in finding this time and rescheduling. And for me, it actually really felt like a beautiful embodiment of a kind of manhood or even humanhood that we might be exploring in our conversation. The, I mean, in some instances, 
because we rescheduled quite a number of times and for very valid reasons. And in some dynamics where maybe someone's version or conception of integrity would mean just showing up regardless. And in other dynamics, it might just be maybe there's a value of sensitivity more so, and it just becomes really uncontained. And there's, there's not a sense of commitment in there, but I really sensed both that our integrity really included sensitivity. And there was a real sense of honoring each other and, and also trust. But in some ways for me, it felt really whole. And so I just felt to, to note that it felt like a beautiful embodiment of that which we'll be exploring. Yeah, look, thank you for naming that because I, I felt the same way. You know, I, I, you do feel some old patterns sort of kick in. It's like, you know, this whole idea of you know, letting people down or, or mm-hmm. you know, particularly with a newer connection, you sort of want to get things right, you know, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. And But yeah, it did. It, it felt really easy. Um, and like you said, you know, there were some valid exchanges and, you know, just the way things rolled. Mm-hmm. But it, it did. And I think I felt that from you that you enabled me to... Just be orientating myself towards honesty, at least anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not arriving. I'm not too sure if anyone ever arrives at that place. It's the beauty of being human. Yeah. Yeah. And here we are. And now I think, you know, we've reached a point where we can have a rich conversation, you know, that's going to nourish mm-hmm. us both, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. I just felt to start there. I felt like, well, I felt important to note in terms of contextualizing our conversation. We've already been on a journey getting here. Um, for yeah. Us to, weave, to weave that in there. But for this conversation, yeah, would you be open to taking a little moment to check in and just both sharing physically, emotionally, mentally, just how it is that we are before diving in? Absolutely, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you feel comfortable sharing first? Just or yeah, you to- yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess physically today, I, I'm really tired. You know, mm-hmm. I'm really tired. There's been a lot of geographical shifts going on in my world, which has literally involved physically moving things, but uh, but also has left my body feeling fatigued. So, yeah, I just moved back into my home after having some work done. And so being out on the road, living in the van and and living with beautiful friends who made space for me, which was just wonderful. And also moving out of our studio in St Kilda in Melbourne, where we've decided not to renew the lease simply due to COVID-19 financial pressures and just being open and closed and open and closed. So moving into a, into a smaller space, which has now happened. And, and I had my first little workshop in there yesterday morning, which is beautiful. And I'm thrilled to be in there. But all in all, um, yeah, there's been a lot going on. And so physically, simply tired. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Emotionally, I'm doing pretty well. You know, I'm feeling, I feel really well supported. And I felt really well supported right through that whole process, you know, driving up the coast in the van, just meeting beautiful friends, many who I hadn't seen for quite some time and just having them open their homes, open their hearts, um, you know, ply me with beautiful food and, and conversation and, and nourishment. You know, I felt as much as it was physically tiring, it was beautifully it was just, it, it was a beautiful journey, you know? Mm-hmm. So here I am, arrived back in my house, arrived in my new studio and feeling pretty good emotionally. I mean, there's a little bit of, I guess there's a little bit of turmoil, but that might even be connected to the collective nature of what's going on as well. I mean, you can't help mm-hmm. but get embroiled in that the minute you step outside y- your door. And mm-hmm. so I guess there's a little bit of that going on as well. But overall, my heart's in a good place. Beautiful. Well, yeah, thanks for showing up. With all of that, yeah, I'm feeling physically a little tight in my lower back specifically lots of sitting writing this paper on eros um so physically feeling a bit tight and maybe stagnant specifically in the lower back emotionally feeling quite racy yeah squeezed and like there are parts that are maybe wanting more of my presence and attention and so i'm listening noting letting them know i'll I'll be with them (laughs) very shortly 
but I definitely feel them kind of fighting for a little bit more of, of me and a kind of sadness that I just don't feel like I can really give them all that they might need just in this next couple of days. Yeah, so definitely noting that and also feeling, yeah, very um, grateful to be back in our space. I enjoy the slowness and depth. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for mm-hmm. sharing that, man. Racy, I kind of I almost feel like I want to ask you to, mm-hmm. to talk further about racy and what that means when it comes to an emotional state of being. Yeah, racy, I suppose, is like there's quite a very clear deadline for quite a large project that has impassioned me quite deeply. So around Eros and the erotic nature of the cosmos, the mind and the self. And yeah, I felt very engulfed by it in the last three months. Uh, in my research from many different perspectives and now in the writing process of weaving everything I've kind of found into my core paper. And I've left that till quite the last minute. And so there's this sense of urgency. There's also a sense of sadness that within me and much of it doesn't have words and just simply cannot, but feels like it may not be experienced through someone reading the paper because I've left this weaving to the last minute. It feels now like I'm just shipping it, which does feel sad. And there's a part of me that feels deeply alive in having gone through this process within myself. And so racy, I suppose, because I feel a deadline, I feel the the sense of real gift and contribution that the paper could offer for those who read it. And yeah, there's this sense of sadness still beneath it. And so it's kind of a rush and still a sadness. Like it's even if I ship it, there's a sense that and maybe that's this, the, the kind of the Beckettian fail that no matter how much we attempt to kind of articulate the ineffable, such as Eros, it'll never touch it. And so there's that, that sense in there for sure. Yeah. Look, oh, wow. There's so much in there. I feel like I could riff off. Yeah, but, um, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, look, when you're speaking archetypally or writing archetypally, you know, there's the danger of trying to codify it and mm-hmm. it's kind of, it's beyond that. So again, you know, you use the word ineffable, but I feel like a project like that can never, never really be finished, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. I, I love the way you've described that as, as racy because it almost feels to me like between the sadness and the excitement, it's this kind of, there's almost this bipolar emotional state, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and yeah. That, that's, I almost feel that that's true in one shape or form in almost every project that I undertake. You know, mm-hmm. it's a bit like, you know, reading a good book and you start slowing up towards the finish because you don't want to finish it because, you know, it's been so good. Yeah, yeah, you know? and yeah. And there's yeah. this kind of constant swing between the polarity of emotions in any given moment, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. the dance is, maybe Eros is the dance in the middle between those two things. That's exactly what I was about to just share. That it, yeah, in many ways, it feels like a very present, visceral sense of Eros being the, well, as I'm coming to describe it and as Wilberwood or James Hillman and and many that it's it's the kind of transcendent transcendent function attempting to know itself again through the imminent or kind of the life longing for itself and so there's this kind of excitement wanting to be known but through the sadness and so there's a yeah there's this tension this raciness the erotic passion I yeah that I was, speak, I was speaking to a friend just recently and he was saying that his acting coach once said that when he was when an actor's crying on stage, they're actually smiling on the inside because, you know, this is it. This mm. is the moment. This is what I'm here for. Yeah. Yeah. That lovely sense there, which I feel into what you're saying. Yeah. I suppose it brings me to what I was really excited to pull on from our last conversation, exploring. We spent a fair bit of time exploring, of course, masculinity and, and also queerness and, and the intersection of kind of queerness and integrated masculinity and also the mythopoetic 
lens and this resurging, re-emerging mythopoetic, I suppose, lens or ontology around living quite simply, but more so within the, the men's work and the healing masculinity movement. So I'm curious to dive into that within the, the men's work movement, but also then to zoom out and, and see what the mythopoetic orientation might afford us in this broader attempt towards restoring wholeness in our, ourself and just our, our humanhood beyond manhood. So I suppose to contextualize it, yeah, I just want to open up the space to share and to help those be letting a little to to how how you've arrived at these inquiries for yourself and the work that you do with Warrior Within, what has been your journey through coming to understand and really value the mythopoetic in your own life and living? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question and it certainly stems from personal experience and a lot of it really comes down to what ignites my passions, my desires, and then hoping through my exploration into that because I'm deeply passionate about it, that um, maybe others, it will help others as well, you know. So I guess you could say, first and foremost, it really came about as a way of my own inquiry and my own healing journey, if you will, and my own coming to wholeness. I've always been fascinated by the written word, or the written and the spoken word, really, language in general. And that really was the underlying premise for why I embarked on the career that I did in corporate communications. I was probably looking at it through the wrong end of the telescope, to be honest, Mm -hmm. writing press releases and corporate statements and CEO speeches and so forth. But nonetheless, for me, it was still getting paid to play with words, which is something that I truly enjoyed. Mm -hmm. And so when I hit a few bumps in the road in terms of the arc of my own life, and, you know, perhaps we'll get into that a little later, but, you know, I was on a, on a certain trajectory with my corporate career and and spending a lot of time internationally and kind of being fed in, I guess, external ways through, you know, financial gain and other things that come from a successful corporate career. When, you know, I had some tragedies in my family and I had a, uh, ran into a pretty significant health crisis. And, you know, to cut a long story short, I found myself in a psych ward in Richmond. And um, I guess from that place, I ended up with a pretty blank canvas, you know, And I turned back to those things. I turned back to the written word. So I started picking up poetry and, you know, writers that I loved and listening to songs for the lyrics and sort of searching for, I guess, what the medicine that I needed, you know. But again, it was still an external, it was still looking for it externally. And then the dial switched when I really got turned on to my meditation practice, which was something that came through my mother early on, but but I hadn't really investigated it fully. But then I realized that by doing so, you know, it was the poetry and the music in my own heart, inside me, that was mm-hmm. the stuff that I really needed to listen to. And so the journey began from there. And I mean, to be very specific, there was a weekend, I was actually in London, there was a weekend where I'd actually really heavily weighing up the decision to end my own life. Mm. And it was that weekend that I actually picked up Iron John, Robert Bly's kind of seminal text and read it from cover to cover. And whilst it wasn't this epiphany, like there it is, there's everything I've been looking for. What Mm. I did do was decide not to kill myself as a result Mm. of that, which may only be small degrees, but you know, (laughs) that was a moment. And from that, I began pulling on that thread. And that led me down all sorts of paths around the mythopoetic. And, you know, fast forwarding many years later, um, I started a men's group, which was largely around just men coming together and meditating, nothing more. I was a meditation teacher at that stage. And I'd been asked by a few men to to put together a little group where they could just come together in a space that was more masculine. At that point, 
you know, a lot of the meditation that was happening in Melbourne was through yoga studios and, and they are typically quite feminine places. Mm-hmm. It's just the way it is. And, you know, often owned by women and have, you know, the essential oils and the flowers and everything's quite mm-hmm. feminine. And the guys were saying, is there a space that we could come together and, and do some, is there like men's style meditations? And I, mm-hmm. I thought, well, none that I know of, but I can certainly put something together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I did. And, you know, before too long, you know, there was 20, 30 and more guys. And what naturally happened is, you know, at the end of a guided meditation, we all started to talk. Mm-hmm. And, and I realized just more through organic evolution that, you know, it was starting to look like that mythopoetic frame. And so I just gave it a little nudge in that direction. Mm-hmm. And it, the nudge has continued, the ball has continued to roll. The golden mm-hmm. ball, perhaps we could say, <laughs> in an yeah, yeah. sense. Wow. Yeah, thanks for sharing. I mean, so briefly, but just sense the depth in, yeah, I suppose the the sense of integrity around your work and like there's a real sense of when someone's landed or, or kind of arrived in a, a clear sense of invitation or inquiry. There's this kind of slowness, I sense anyway, in which they speak about it. And so, yeah, I can really sense that in you. And yeah, I'm so curious about, well, so many things, but that's the first time I've heard from you about the piece around starting the meditation circles for, for guys and that were a little bit more maybe stereotypically or archetypically masculine for them. And I find it interesting that, I mean, a lot of the men's work that I do and that I'm part of is really about supporting those who identify as men to inhabit maybe the more archetypically feminine aspects of self a little more. And of course, the healthier orientations or manifestations of the masculine aspects of self, but that it's almost that discomfort in being in a feminine place that is kind of the healing. And so I definitely have questions around how you navigated that and how now you, yeah, I suppose play with that discomfort. But also maybe, I mean, I'm just going to mark that question for a little later, but before we dive in to, I mean, we're throwing around some words that I'm always just curious to, to hear where people or how people define them. And for listeners also just to, to get other reference points because they are words. Uh, and so it's nice to create a sense of shared meaning before we start using them. So mythopoetic, like what is that? And then masculine and feminine. How do you talk about those? Mm. <laughs> Small questions, but not so much, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah look, mythopoetic. Uh, it's an interesting term. It was actually coined by, a, may have even been a journalist in the beginning. I do remember I've heard Robert Bly talk about the fact that he didn't, he, he wasn't in love with that terminology for the work that they did. So that's just an interesting kind of byline there. Mm-hmm. So it is a term which can be used in, I guess, in a loose way. But for me, it's just about men finding a place where they can creatively express themselves, you know, mm-hmm. be that through poetry, through music, you know, through, you know, as it was in the early days, going into the woods and, and banging drums together. Mm-hmm. And the idea was really to get into those uncomfortable places of pain that mm-hmm. men have such difficulty in accessing, you know. And so, you know, Bly and the other mythopoets really talked a lot about this idea of men getting into their grief, mm-hmm. you know, and doing the work of, you know, what he would call a conscious descent. So instead of all this spiritual work, which is always about up, always going up, you know, it was literally the other way, mm-hmm. which took on a very Jungian framework, you know, this idea that becoming enlightened is about making the dark conscious. Mm-hmm. and so, you know, men, when they came together 
in brotherhood and are able to hold each other, are able to go into those depths of their heart, of their soul, and kind of, you know, explore those those areas of grief and pain and try to distill some meaning and even distill some purpose, you know. The mythopoets would certainly point to the fact that, you know, the gold that's in those murky depths is really where you're, in Michael Mead's words, it's where your genius lies. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's really it. It's finding a way to creatively express yourself as a way to kind of digging into the uncomfortable parts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's really interesting because if you look at the players that were around at the beginning of the mythopoetic movement, you've got Robert Bly, who was essentially a poet. You've mm-hmm. got Michael Mead, who was a mythologist and, and storyteller. And then, of course, James Hillman, who's a, a Jungian analyst. And I think those are the three threads that weave together to form the mythopoetic. It's poetry and words and that, that beauty, song. Yeah, And then it's the ancient wisdom and the old myths that, that need to get told again. You know, mm-hmm. I'm very clear on this idea of to restore the world, we need to restory the world. We need to get back in touch with the old stories. Mm. And then, of course, James Hillman providing that kind of Jungian structure around the whole thing, which is so important. Yeah. To restore the world, we need to restory. Which is very much not mine. It's, it's Michael Mead's, but... Um, I find myself using it a lot because it, it really resonates with me. Yeah, and with me. And I'm curious about, I mean, we are speaking more so through the lens of the men's work movement. And I have heard the mythopoetic, I suppose, movement spoken more of in relation to kind of the men's work movement. And yeah, I suppose I wonder how do you feel, think and sense that it goes well beyond manhood and masculinity? And if so, like, like, what do you think it does afford us in terms of this broader inquiry of the podcast here, which I think we align around restoring wholeness in self and in society and restoring the world. So what do you feel, I suppose this is to speak to those who are listening and who maybe don't identify as a man, like how is this conversation relevant for those people? Yeah, I honestly think the mythopoetic is definitely not just men's work, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that's true even if you look at its history. I mean, the very, f- the first conferences around this stuff that Robert Bly and the guys began to hold was called the Great Mother Conference. Mm. You know, it only became the Great Mother and New Father Conferences, which is known as now, later. So, Mm -hmm. you know, and if you look at um, Robert Bly's work, the arc of his kind of career, he began by exploring the feminine. That was his first starting point. And he very much came back to that later with his work that he did with Marion Woodman. And some people out there might know the book, The Maiden King, which came out after Iron John. It was, and, you know, I mean, the subtitle of that book is The Reunion of the Masculine and the Feminine. Mm-hmm. And he went, you know, on tours with Marion Woodman where they told The Maiden King together and talked about, you know, the masculine and feminine coming together, both internally and, and externally coming back to wholeness, you know, even as a culture, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it's very much been present all the way along. And of course, you know, writing alongside Iron John and written at about the same time was Clarissa Pinkola Estes's book, you know, Women Who Run With The Wolves. And, and she, she would call herself a mythopoet for sure. You know, she's a Jungian analyst. Mm-hmm. But of course, you know, she's operating in exactly the same, same way, but calling in the archetype of the wild woman and speaking to those that identify as women, whereas, you know, Robert's out there calling in the wild man. So, you know, and then this bridging piece, the work that, um, that Marion Woodman and Robert Bly were doing together. So I think it's very relevant to humans. Yeah, brilliant. I definitely do as well. I just felt to truly note and place that in there for those who maybe have not or are just starting to dive into this work and might be wondering what it really does 
offer or, or what what is it really um, yeah you know and al i should i should add too like you know our, our sort of the major piece of of warrior within is this 12-week course we do called the warrior's way you know mm-hmm. if i was to run that as a mixed course uh, there's nothing i'd have to change in the course mm-hmm. yeah. nothing at all yeah. you know it, the way it is at the mm-hmm. moment today but yeah. you know, who knows yeah. what that will look like in a year from now yeah i would just say that's and i, was, I do definitely intend to dive into that and just hear more about the I suppose, the journey and some of the core pieces, the trajectory and the process that you guide people through in the course. But would you say that it is very, I mean, it doesn't matter who or which humans doing the course, that it's fundamentally working with, I suppose, the archetypically feminine aspects of the psyche and the archetypically masculine aspects of the psyche and working to, to integrate both. And so it doesn't matter which body someone is living within that fundamentally it's about a kind of a wholeness of psyche. Yeah, I think that's a very fair representation of what happens. And, you know, to paint things with a very broad brush, what we're doing is, I mean, we're taking someone on that archetypical, you know, hero's journey in a sort of Joseph Campbell type mm-hmm. of way. And of course, you know, Joe was obviously extremely well connected to, to the myth. You know, he was showing up um, a lot and and Robert and, and he became great friends. And you can, you can understand why, because it's sort of, you know, Joseph Campbell's work kind of ties together those three men quite well. Mm-hmm. So for us, when we're running the programs, you know, it very much goes through those three big phases of the the hero's journey, which is the departure, you know, the initiation and the return, mm-hmm. which is quite simplistic, but, you know, it needs to be. Mm-hmm. And so within each of those, we sit in each of those stages a month each. Departure is really more about, I guess, learning. It's a learning phase. Mm-hmm. Um, and the initiation is when we start to kind of I guess, you know, go underground and do the work, looking at both the masculine and the feminine side and also looking at death and some other big topics. And then, you know, coming home with, with the gold, so to speak, um, mm-hmm. and looking at what, you know, the little obstacles along the way. Uh, you know, a good example is, you know, once everything's been revealed to you and you've, you've spent some time in that innermost cave, you know, there's a certain hesitancy to come back <laughs> because mm-hmm. coming back, going, why, why would I go back to what I was before? That's what the, that's what the psyche tries to tell you, but of course, no man swims in the same river twice, so to speak, mm-hmm. and you're not going back to what it was before. But you know, you need to be recognised as having changed. So there's all these little nuances along the way, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting. Yeah, I'd love to dive a little more into those three components. It's very, I mean, it, the hero's journey or a rat's of passage arc around yes, yeah, separation, transformation, integration that itself, that kind of model is, I suppose, quite an archetypical model for the transition of psyche. Um, yeah, it is. And, and and there's no doubt that the hero's journey has its limitations. Hmm. There's no doubt about that. And I think in, in the world we live in today, in this moment, it's revealing more and more that it does have limitations. But I think that's okay. I think just to give men at this point, men, a framework, which, you know, a container and an understanding that this is what's happening and this is where we're going, I think is very, very useful. Like, you know, again, you know, part of our journey with the men at the beginning, you know, we, we talk about king, warrior, magician, lover as the, as the four kind of major, and I'm putting this in quotation marks, masculine archetypes. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, those are, it, it almost, it almost loops us back to the same conversation we had around Eros in that, you know, mm-hmm. how do you quantify, codify, define those archetypes? Because they're mm-hmm. kind of, they're kind of infinite and ineffable. 
Yeah. But again, they offer a really great framework, you know, and when you talk about, um, I'm not sure, have, have you read King Warrior Magician Love? Yeah. When you play out that, you know, the way they, they operate, the, the two, the, the passive and the active shadow sides and everything, like, yes, it, it's to some degree a limited view of the world, but you can, you can see an understanding kicking in and it gives, gives people a framework to operate mm-hmm. and, yeah, and yeah. To start to look at something non-ordinary. Yeah, and I appreciate that you brought up the possible limits of using, say, these archetypal models as well. And The King, Warrior, Magician, Lover is a book that I loved and provided a lot of guidance for me and also felt very limiting. And in my experience of men's work, especially when, say, a circle is based solely over those four archetypes and it's all about getting you there, I felt it very limiting. I mean, as a queer man, for me, there is gift in starting to articulate these kind of wordless dimensions of the psyche as best we can and also recognizing that that's still not it and so let's let's maybe aim towards them but not with the attempt of getting to them because still then i'd feel like i'm not actually myself even if i am integrated to the extent of say what at least i got out of out of the books and so yeah i suppose i just wanted to note the also the the limits of these models and bring in a, a kind of humility that they are I see them as orienting devices, like they orient our, our attempt. And on the flip side of that, yeah, there kind of is a, a constant humility asked for in us. I, I love that. And I think that that's pretty much exactly how I feel too. And like, I, I think offering them as, as a framework and a guide and something to, as you say, orient yourself towards is, is fabulous. But I, I can also see the limitations. But, but you know what? You know, when I'm speaking, even in the courses, I, I'll say that. It's not like we, we, we offer them as, the, as, as everything. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah. We're very clear in the conversations that I had that, that that's, that's the purpose of these, you know, uh, of these tools, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I love this idea of attempting to get closer. You know, it, it feels very sort of David White-esque to me, this mm-hmm. idea of kind of never really arriving. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's, that's the beauty of the whole journey to me. Mm-hmm. And it's something that's constantly kind of re-emphasized throughout, throughout our courses. Mm-hmm. We're not, it's not like you do this program and then you've, you've done it. You, you're well done. You reach the mm-hmm. end. Uh, you know, the way is kind of, it's not a process. It's, it's a way of being. It's a way of being in every moment. And that's constantly evolving all the time. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's like you take the step forward each step just with the faith that the ground is going to be there to, to catch your foot as it falls. You're mm-hmm. making the path as you walk it. Yeah, I love that. And I obviously love David White. Those listening in will very much know, probably be quite annoyed at my <laughs> my love of David White every single episode. There tends to be something. <laughs> something proper, David White. Well, look, I'll be honest because, you know, I, I could listen to him talk about what he had for breakfast and I'd be riveted mm-hmm. to, to yeah, every yeah. breath. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, the never ending horizon. And it's, I think, in his piece in Constellations and on ambition. And the kind of the beauty of ambition and the the trap of ambition. Yeah, yeah I love um, that. And the idea that you know what I think he says, your compost for for worlds you know nothing about. Mm-hmm. Oh, David. David. <laughs> 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 on David and on poetry. I mean, we're talking about the mythopoetic, and I read online, and I know that you're a HeartMath uh, instructor as well. And what did it say online? It was about combining hard intelligence and storytelling. And yeah, so I suppose I wonder about the, like the role of the poetic and how poetry and the way I relate to 
the mythopoetic is this kind of the mythos and the logos and logos is we're very good at in the western world logic logically working and living our way through through this life and trying to make sense but the mythos is in in many ways the the ineffable we're talking about and yeah in my sense is that it does require it's it's speaking to the heart not only the logical mind and so yeah i suppose i wonder how and there's a certain way of experiencing poetry i remember for me in my first experiences of poetry just didn't land like i just didn't get it maybe or i didn't allow myself to receive it and i yeah experienced this kind of there's an invitation in poetry to kind of meet it halfway for me as if i'm sipping tea like i can't just expect it to wow me i have to open to it how yeah how do you allow yourself to to receive story with heart to receive poetry with heart great question I mean, sort of stepping back for a moment in terms of the heart math stuff, that really, I, I have a curious mind and it sort of, it works both ways for me. I kind of, I'm happy to kind of take the leap of faith where required, but, you know, if there's something more tangible that can get me to the same place, I'd probably like to to try that route as well and just ensure that the thread comes back mm-hmm. to the same place. And for me, heart math kind of gave me that. And, and it's a very t- effective tool I find also for guiding people because, you know, I can talk to both sides of the brain, so to speak. But, mm-hmm. I, I, but I, I loved what you said around the, the, the logos and the, and the mythos because I feel like you know, so many men, and I'm going to be coming back to men because it's, it's predominantly what I'm doing at the moment. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, you know, they, they arrive and they're just stuck in their heads, you know. And, and if I look at culture and, and our way of life is kind of keeping them there, I mean, even if we look at the pandemic unfolding, you know, it, it, all we hear is numbers. Mm-hmm. All we hear is numbers and all the rhetoric is around keeping us firmly in our heads. And, you know, for me, you know, a lot of this work is literally that famous eight inch journey south, you know, down to the center of your chest. And, you know, even the shamans talk about the realm of myth, the myth realm as being in the center of your chest, the soul realm, you know. And for me, that's what story and poetry can do for us. It can. So this idea, it's interesting that you use the phrase, I getting it because a lot of men i'll hear say that i don't get poetry and when i hear that i feel like you're trying to brain your way through it you know it's (laughs) like you're trying to what exactly does the poet mean when he or she says that you know it's like well uh, and so my answer to your question is really you know uh, as best as i can i I feel it Mm -hmm. rather than get it you know and, and the question that i'm asking myself constantly when i'm listening to poetry is what's showing up for me you know how how is this making me feel Mm-hmm. Not trying to sort of figure out what the poet meant when he used those particular he or she used those particular words, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and I feel like I'm I'm quite good at that. I feel like I'm quite a kinesthetic person. Here I am using the word feel three times in one sentence, so you can probably <laughs> get a uh, get an idea of, of that being a truth for me. Mm-hmm. And it's probably why poetry and stories and words had such an impact on me in my youth, because you know we're very much open hearted at that point. So. You know, I remember being really moved by by story and and by words and by poetry. You know, mm-hmm. I'd be writing out entire songs just just so I could feel the lyrics because they came out of my pen. You know, mm-hmm. uh, when I was young, I'm talking like under ten. Wow. Yeah, I love the eight inch journey south. Yeah, yeah, and the <laughs> yeah size yeah. doesn't matter. Something like that. <laughs> no, you you'll feel when you're there. Um, Correct. Yeah, but the. Yeah, there's the piece around really sensing and, and feeling how you feel in relation to the piece. And it just has me feel, I mean, I write a lot of poetry as well. And David White speaks about poetry being the art of overhearing yourself, saying something you didn't think you knew. 
But also, uh, I don't know if David White specifically notes this, or if it was maybe like Khalil Gibran, that poetry is really about speaking from the silence without disturbing it, or that place without disturbing it. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me of something David White said, which I find myself using a lot because it, it really helps, and that's find a place where you don't know what to say and speak from there, mm-hmm. which is similar. Yeah. And so on the flip side of that, in receiving poetry from somebody, I suppose, in my experience of attempting to write it, receiving it for me is sensing what is the unknown place within me that is tickled or kind of invoked in receiving because obviously any piece of art isn't finished until there's a subjective experience of it on the other side. And so it's there is a reciprocal conversation between me and a piece. And so it's up to me to participate in the piece. And so the, just a question for me, and maybe this will help those also wanting to maybe just feel poetry a little deeper, is just to sense what is that kind of unknown silence or the wordless inside that probably doesn't feel or might not feel completely met by the piece, but at least feels a little acknowledged or invoked, which really helped me just to to flip that little piece around the silence as a receiver. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It, it feels it feels to me again like a dance. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm I'm being invited to dance. Yeah. And it's for me listening to poetry is quite active mm-hmm. in the sense that. You know, I'm being invited into a dance with the with the writer, and and I'm being asked to not do nothing mm-hmm. in the receiving, you mm-hmm. know, to be an active participant in the in the process. You know, Leonard Cohen's words are coming to me right now as well, and he said, "When your life is burning well, poetry is the ashes." Mm. Wow, wow, there's something in that 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 lands for me. Mm-hmm. When your life is burning well, poetry is the ashes. Yeah. And it also brings up for me, I just had a visual speaking about both writing poetry and poetry itself as an art form and medium. And then the receiving of the poetry, Peter Wilberg's work around maiutic listening or listening as mid- midwifery. And in many ways, I just kind of have this vision or this image of two humans with this deep silence and this, their deep being on either side is this empty kind of voidal self. And then there's this communication of poetry in between as the midwife that is attempting to allow both of those humans to experience each other's deep being or to experience each other's silence and voidal nature. And so it's this attempt to to have the deepest part of ourselves be known in this kind of exchange. Yeah, which just feels and there's definitely a deep healing in it for me. And it comes comes for me in this like balance of what I experience uh, as Living deeply in the knowing that there is deep meaning here and this matters. And at the same time, that it's not up to me. And really, I came from the cosmos and going to return back. And so to not take it all so seriously, but to just live in that place where nothing really matters can lead to a kind of nihilism. And to just live in the place where everything matters can lead to a real kind of neuroses or just incessant ex- existential anxiety. So somewhere between the two is what I would call engaged life, engaged living. Or um, eros. We keep, or eros. Back, we keep coming back to that <laughs> middle place. It's true. And essentially, I agree with everything you said just there. And, you know, two people communicating with one another, you know, writing down symbols on a page or making noises with their mouth. You know, I, I'm not too sure if two people have ever had, had an accurate conversation. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I'm listening, reading what you're attempting to 
show me and I'm failing mm-hmm. because you're coming from a certain set of experiences and a certain certain values and all the other things which make up who you are, as am I, mm-hmm. and they're not the same. And so it always falls in the middle. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's why I think poetry needs to be experienced because like everything else with communication, it's not accurate, um, mm-hmm. it's not direct, and it involves two humans needing to engage with one another in this dance. And also knowing that as soon as a noise comes out of my mouth, I've failed. Mm-hmm. I've failed in conveying what I really mean. Mm. And so we just do the best we can. We muddle about in the middle. And I love this idea of, of, of what you're saying around, you know, that we're both very, very big and, and very, very small all at the same time. Mm. You know, there's an African proverb is, which is, you're as important as a leaf on a tree. Mm-hmm. And you can read that many ways. You're listening to Spaces Between with your friend and host Al Jeffrey. If you are enjoying this episode and this conversation so far, I do really invite you and encourage you and would really appreciate if you went across to either Spotify or Apple Podcasts and left a rating, a review. Of course, make sure to subscribe first of all. But on Apple Podcasts, more so, please do leave a review and a rating it helps us become exposed to more people and it also helps those who haven't listened to an episode yet see the value and decide to really dive in so if you're enjoying this episode please do head across and leave a review and get in touch at spacesbetweenpodcast.com to access all the show notes further resources and the community Yeah, so I'd love to dive a little further into your exploration of the mythopoetic within specifically the men's work movement and be a little, you know, provocative or just let's go to the core as much as we can and be yeah, a little bit playful and also respectful. But where where do you feel or what do you sense is the like the real invitation or what are you finding as a possibility that maybe you know, really uncomfortable that that you feel is at the core of this work? Well, I think if you think about the time when the first wave of the mythopoetic rose, you know, in the, I guess, early 90s, you know, that's coming up to what, you know, 30 years ago now. And, you know, things have changed. And so I think probably the most obvious answer to that question is what's arising in terms of even how we define masculinity and femininity and man and woman and Hmm. all of that Mm -hmm, (laughs) in a nutshell. And so, you know, none of that really existed anywhere near the way it exists now. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder, you know, what does that mean in terms of of the mythopoetic? Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's no doubt that it should be all embracing, but what does that look like when you start getting into the details? Yeah, we touched on it in our last catch up and it's as i've shared and also on on the show that it's a big part of my inquiry as a queer man is for me i really feel my queerness as an identity and again that goes well beyond sexual preference it's my way of being in the world my queerness is kind of my expression of an integrated masculinity and i witness it in many men that i sit in circle with and that i hold circle for and with that at a certain stage when we all start to ask these questions of what does it mean to integrate these kind of archetypes within myself 
at a certain point, maybe, and I've experienced it in others, a question comes about of like, oh, so maybe, maybe I am not simply heteronormative or normative in the, the way that I thought I was. And so it does really bring up questions for me around what is it that we're creating spaces for here? It's a great question. And I think, you know, maybe I could ask you a question in return. And that is, you know, if I look at the demographics of, say, our community at the moment, it doesn't reflect the demographics of men in the community in terms of the number of gay men that we have in the community. It's far Mm -hmm. lower. And, you know, we're, we're very open. We're very clear in terms of who we're inviting in. Mm-hmm. So my question back to you potentially might be, you know, why is that? Mm. Why is that? And I think there's there's a multifaceted answers to that question, but I think yeah, it's a yeah. very important question. Yeah. So are you saying that in terms of those in your community, there's a very low representation of minority yeah. men? Yeah. men? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, it's overwhelmingly heterosexual men. Mm-hmm. And yeah. yet... You know, it's it's not like that's who we're marketing to. Um, it's very mm-hmm. clearly all inclusive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. you know, the question would be, well, why is that? Is that the case? Mm. And uh, you know, you know, I feel the words coming out of my mouth around brevity or something like that. But you know, you shouldn't. It shouldn't even need to be anything like that. It's a bit like you know, we know that there are men that aren't heterosexual of, of all persuasions in AFL football or anything else, but they're not mm-hmm. moving forward. You know? um, yeah, yeah. And I don't think it shouldn't have to be this giant move that they, that they seem mm-hmm. to have to make. But currently I think maybe that's just where we are right now at this moment in time. I'm not sure. Yeah. 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 I suppose my answer to that question, which is what really creates aliveness for my inquiry around this is that simply I haven't felt safe in many men's groups at all as a queer man, which is why I created one. Can I ask what was predominantly making you not feel safe in those spaces? Yeah, I suppose. And we speak about language and the power of words. But for most, and maybe I'll just extend it and say anyone in any minority group or who has experienced any level of oppression, whether socially, politically, systemically, culturally, we are constantly looking for cues of safety. And that will show up in someone's physical behavior. But a lot of it comes from the languaging that's used. And so in a men's circle, if every example of relationship is a heterosexual relationship, I'm not receiving cues of safety here. And yeah, I suppose a lot of it's also about the tone of the tone of the languaging. We might be talking about our, about our emotions in circle, but still comes with this, in my experience sometimes, can still come with almost a violent approach to emotions. And so my nervous system does not, or has, hadn't, felt safe in those spaces and yeah which is why i went about creating my own and so that kind of my own embodied experience of that having not felt safe in my queerness in men's circles or men's work and at the same time the kind of my sense that my queerness feels to be my expression of my integrated masculinity really raises questions for me if we are attempting to create spaces for those who identify as men to integrate the aspects of themselves to come to a more integrated sense of their manhood yet in my my own sense of my integrated manhood which can be called queerness i haven't felt safe are we actually creating spaces that are safe enough for integrated masculinity is kind of an alive question for me and i'm I'm not sure in very subtle ways around languaging and how we hold the space to create the possibility for queerness uh, or for wholeness is just another way i would put it for myself to arise in a space yeah, I know we spoke about just this 
briefly an, an example in the break. And I'm wondering if you'd like to share anything on that that feels appropriate and respectful. Yeah. I mean, you know, firstly, I'd really just like to, like, listening to your answer there actually makes me feel quite sad. Mm. And yeah, a, a little bit lost, actually, in a sense, because we really, at least me personally, you know, I, I'm trying to do my very best to be as inclusive as, as we can. And, and I absolutely know and it's that I'm getting it wrong at a certain level. Mm. And it, it makes me sad in a sense that, you know, it's this desire in me to, to want to get it right, sure. Mm-hmm. But at the same time that, you know, there are men that have possibly shown up in, in, our, in our spaces and have not felt safe and I've never known. Um, mm-hmm. On occasion, I have known and we've had conversations and that's all fine and, and we, we do the best we can. Mm. But, you know, but on the other side, it really makes me want to strive to do better. Mm. So, you know, I just really want to say thank you for, for sharing that because, you know, I, I do feel, you know, I do feel quite naive and I can only do the best I can do in, in these moments. And, and I, I know that we're going to make mistakes, mm. but I really would love to get to a point where that wasn't the case. Where, you know, men, all men, no matter how they identify as men and in all shapes and sizes are all are coming along and everybody's feeling included and safe and, and it's not language in a way which is threatening or making them feel any other way than that. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that's a, that's yeah, a desire yeah. in my heart, something to strive for. Yeah, and I suppose in hearing that, I, um, yeah, there's obviously part of me that feels connected in hearing someone's sadness for the experience. And there's also a part of me that, wants to almost protect you from your sadness because it, it is going to be a constant never-ending we can always be safer like for me i love the idea of it used to be a lot of discourse in the kind of facilitation space around creating safe space or cr- creating courageous space or brave space but i'm such a, a proponent of creating safer spaces just acknowledging that we will never get there i don't believe to a place where everyone feels safe but to hold a position that we're attempting constantly for a slightly safer space, I think is important. Uh, and I really hear that in you. And I do witness it in these movements. I've had so many conversations similar to this, and it is heartwarming to feel everyone in our unknowing, but our desire to build safer spaces. Yeah, I like that. And again, you know, we're going back to this idea of getting closer, but never really arriving, because mm-hmm. you know, I find myself in a struggle with the word safe quite a lot. Mm. Because life inherently is not safe and creating a safe space is when you say to someone, I've created a safe space, you're actually not being accurate with your words mm-hmm. because it's, it's not something that you can actually do or certainly not guarantee. Mm. And also that, you know, culture, people, us, humans, individuals, we actually need inherent risk in order to grow. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I've said it many times before, but, you know, a culture that prides itself on safety will preserve the culture but it won't grow the culture it won't flourish mm-hmm. you know it just gets stuck in its safety and i think we're seeing that right now in with the pandemic mm-hmm. it's this absolutely undeterred striving towards safety which is, is not inherently possible mm. Mm. I, yeah. I worry about the yeah. hashtag stay safe yeah i'm more roomy roomy-esque in the in the you know, <laughs> run from safety yeah yeah yeah, but but you asked me a question around, you know, personal or at least experiences within our group that talk to mm-hmm. that inform this conversation, I guess. And you know, we've been blessed by the appearance of our mutual friend Ian McKenzie, mm-hmm. and I think since he's been actively involved in our space and bringing in you know his work from the mythic masculine, you know, his view of the world is really opening the eyes of some of our men. You know, in talking to emerging masculinities, you know. 
And I think it was a piece that he did exploring Lil Nas X and his video clip for Montero, which kind of prompted some really interesting discussion and then a session within our community, you know, talking about that. Because that video, in my mind, just shows how precise Lil Nas X was in terms of, well, A, his, his or at least everybody involved in that video and their, their mythic intelligence. I thought it was incredible. It was just, it was, it was so rich. But also, in terms of the storyline which played out there, it was very much, you know, challenging old paradigms of masculinity, I guess. And so what it did for us was kind of provide a little gateway for us to step through. Mm-hmm. And as I was saying to you when we had our little break, you know, the men that showed up for that session, it was really interesting because you almost felt like there was a collective exhale mm-hmm. in the sense that, oh, we're allowed to talk about these things in here. And, you know, I'm like, of course, you, of course, so this is exactly, you know, or at least one of the threads that I've been wanting to pull for a long time. And I see it as becoming an, an intrinsic part of what we're all about. Mm-hmm. you know, exploring what's emerging. But um, yeah, it was just, it was fascinating just to to listen to a group of, I guess, everyday men, heterosexual men, all, all of whom were heterosexual on that call, just having a conversation where there are actually some deep inquiry and some deep curiosity inwardly mm. around their nature and their masculine nature and what that actually meant. Mm-hmm. And it was beautiful to witness. And I think I was saying to you, there's there's probably a number of men in our community that just wouldn't feel inclined to show up for a conversation like that. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have to learn to put our arms around everyone. Mm. Yeah. And when you mentioned this exhale around that, you know, we weren't sure or we weren't, we didn't know that we could talk about these things. When you say these things, are you meaning around kind of sexual expression or just identity and, and what manhood really could mean yeah just just the sense that we didn't have to be so rigid in our Mm. definition yeah of how we showed up in the world and that you know that it's actually more than okay in fact it's it's great to be curious in the sense that you know that's what warrior within is really all about that's what the mythopoetic is all about at its core it's this idea Mm -hmm. of asking beautiful questions well i feel like we're on a real david white rant today because that's exactly (laughs) something he would say but you know i'll often say to the men you know i don't have the answers but maybe maybe i've got some really good questions Mm -hmm. and for me like opening up a container like that provides the ability to ask some really beautiful deep curious questions of yourself and no matter what the answer, there probably won't be one, but there'll be snippets of, of gold which you can carry with you in your medicine bag for the rest of your life. Like mm-hmm. knowing a little bit more about who you really are and who you really are at the edges mm-hmm. and that it's okay. Yeah. It's absolutely yeah. okay. Mm. Yeah, and just hearing a kind of radical stance of curiosity, which you did mention, yeah, in the break, is being, I forgot how you worded it, but you mentioned somehow that, that curiosity is for you uh, it sounded like a bedrock of living, of living well. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, curiosity is is definitely a deeply held value of mine. Mm-hmm. And I like to experience things. I'm I'm very much of the opinion that, you know, you can't have an opinion unless you've really experienced both sides. Mm-hmm. Of course, you're welcome to have one, but I think it, it won't be, you know, the old, the old idea of the John Stuart Mill, you know, um, steel man argument. It's like um, he who only knows one side of the case knows little of that. Mm-hmm. So, 
for me, that's really what spurs my curiosity. And, you know, I'm a 53-year-old man right now, so I can say that I've had those experiences and, you know, 30 or more years ago in terms of, of my curiosity. And, you know, as, and I can say that and still say I was a consenting adult at the time to give you an idea of my age. So, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, no, yeah. nonetheless, you know, I think um, through a mythopoetic lens, I think curiosity is is a huge part of it, you know, and, mm-hmm. and a curi- oftentimes it's an, an inward-looking curiosity. Mm-hmm. As opposed to an external one, yeah, yeah. I think, was it was it Campbell that said that? Oh, I'm going to yeah, not do it at service, but oh, the, the dreams are to our personal imagination. What myth is to our cultural imagination? Yeah, I, I recognize that quote. It might have even mm-hmm. been Jung. Yeah, possibly. I recognize that quote, and yeah, I mean, I would yeah, it resonates with me for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose much of it is, and we've been speaking about myth not just in terms of our collective kind of unconscious, but also a massive part of the weaving of our of our personal unconscious. And yeah, just acknowledging the deep reciprocity between both our personal imagination and our cultural imagination. And so as we dive into the mythopoetic through our personal practice, whether it's opening up to receiving poetry in the ways that we've kind of touched on, or sitting in circle and and inviting in mythos a little more into the conversations we're holding yeah i suppose developing a relationship to the the mythos and the the poetics of our life also help us reweave a culture where the poetics are more lived and and i also you know it's just struck me as you were speaking that how how far away we've come from that to the point where a myth means a lie Mm -hmm. Hmm. so you know i think about that in terms of how we're responding to even the word mythos potentially that it's a place of deep something not to be trusted or something mm. like that, particularly so at the moment when we're seeing such radical divisiveness mm. in our culture that yeah, it almost yeah. feels like one side is myth and the other side is, is, is ethos. Yeah. yeah and that's yeah. a shame. That's a great, great shame because I think, you know, as a culture we've fallen out of story and, and as we talked about right at the beginning, this idea of restoring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mythos is, is actually, it was beautifully called... Because it's the place of metaphor, in a sense. And I think we learn, like, ethos is this, is this place of facts. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like as humans, we learn more of the deep truths through metaphor. And that's why I think myth works so beautifully in that space. Mm-hmm. And was it might have been, I can't remember who said it, but he said, art, and you could insert myth here, um, is a series of little lies that tell a deeper truth. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, potentially that's how we've come to misdefine the word myth. Mm-hmm. If that's a word, mystifying. Mystifying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> look, look at us throwing around all these bloody philosophical snippets here and there. Yeah. So I suppose in, in starting to wrap, yeah, and acknowledging the deep, ugh, and I'm, again, to bring it back to Eros for me, this, this tension between kind of logos and mythos and the, I think it was James Hillman that said that the that eros is the kind of sensuous longing for the sensuous longing beyond the sensately concrete like there's this this longing for the transcendence that we kind of feel stuck and i definitely resonate with this and those listening in might as well that that in many ways our kind of ailment or our collective suffering is rooted in a lack of the transcendent function a lack of being able to to feel at home in something larger than a kind of alienated self and so if, if mythos might help us live in that way again, I suppose what, 
what might your invitations be to those listening in who who would like to kind of reacquaint themselves with mythos? Where would one begin? Well, read some poetry could be a great start, you know, or just pick up the pen, mm. start writing. You know, again, you know, the invitation from David White of, of that place, starting from that place where you don't know what to say. And maybe it's just a, a creative Maybe it's just a stream of consciousness that, you know, flows out from your thoughts out through your, down your arm and out your fingers and out of the pen and onto the page and not judging what comes out, you know. You're allowed to write the biggest load of shit known to man mm-hmm. and just be okay with that. And that's, that's a, for me, a great starting place. Or just, you know, I mean, I have a number of poetry anthologies. They're, they're the things that sit beside my bed, mm. not self-help books, you know. And, you know, I'll turn and just, open to any page and just just start reading and then just open myself up to to receiving that gift and just and just feeling it so that's a great place to start i mean if you wanted to dive into actually listening to some of the ancient stories i mean there's so many places on youtube you can go um i'd say probably um the place that i'd start is michael mead's work the mosaic voices the living myth podcast that he does every week which is such a great listen because it's often only 20 or 30 minutes long Mm-hmm. And he'll talk about what's happening in contemporary culture and then drop in a little ancient story to kind of make his point. And that's like a lovely little snack-sized mythical interlude that you can have every week. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Just to puncture the the logic, the rationale with something a little more inclusive, maybe. Yeah, just stepping out of the ordinary for a moment. You know, I really feel, again... And we've got to learn to kind of dance in both worlds of the ordinary and the non-ordinary, you know, a foot in, a foot mm-hmm. in both camps, so to speak. And the world is trying to push us into the ordinary all the time, into the um, the mundane. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's important to have a foot in the sacred as well. Oh, yeah. Just to keep it all open. And um, if you're in that place, yeah, Michael Mead tells a wonderful story. Maybe it's a, a nice way to come towards some sort of conclusion here. But he talks about the word weird. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he says that if someone calls you weird, it's actually a great blessing because uh, it comes from a Welsh word, which basically means a foot in a foot on each side. Wow. And so if you're called weird, you know, you're essentially, you know, bordering on a, on a mystic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so the next time someone says, hey, you're weird, it's like, thank you. Thank you very, very much. I'm finally getting somewhere. <laughs> yeah. The work is paying off. What a gift. Yeah, to weirdness, to strangeness, to wholeness, to living in the middle world, integrating or at the frontier of the uh, the two very important worlds, maybe. Yeah. Well, I feel like this conversation, it's kind of, maybe it has been pretty weird, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll let, leave that up to the listeners. I mean, I definitely feel whole and excited. Yeah. I mean, I have had some family members say that they, they don't really agree with me identifying as queer because it has these connotations back in the day of like strangeness. And for me, in a similar sense, like that is a compliment. Yes, I am a little bit estranged. Al, maybe weird and, and queer are kind of similes in a certain sense. Yeah, I definitely but feel that's that. an essence of inquiry in both, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Thank you, Ash. So much fruit and juice and life and continuing question from our conversation. And I'll definitely be putting many links in the show notes, including that to your website, to Warrior Within. We didn't get to dive too much into the program design, but of course, those who are curious and it resonated, feel free to head across and click on the link. Any other parting invitations or thought feelings before we wrap? 
Not really, only to say thank you, Al. Thank you. Because I feel like every time we have a conversation, there's a gentle invitation from you to kind of extend myself in terms of, you know, really kind of broaden myself. And mm-hmm. um, it's just nice to connect with someone who has that ability. Mm. So for me, it's more just feeling a deep sense of, of gratitude for you. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. And, and reciprocated. So nice to feel. Yeah. I mean, I feel challenged and reminded as well. And that's the beautiful thing, I suppose, about brotherhood, just about kinship and both like living the questions side by side. So thank you to many more. Absolutely. Absolutely. What questions are still whirring inside for you? What landed and what rung loudly for you? Let's just take a moment. Thank you for joining me for another life-affirming, enriching conversation, each one a light, a torch to guide us on our path to being in right relationship with ourselves, those we walk with, and the ecologies we are very much a part of. I trust this has gifted you something to place in your toolkit to support you in your own journey and your leadership. Sitting here and practicing and recording on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people from the Kulin Nation here in Nam, Melbourne, Australia, I'd like to pay my deep respects and thanks to their elders past, present and emerging. May this work, this offering, be a prayer for the remembrance, the renewal and the reclamation needed to live in relationship with culture and country as those who have been here for tens of thousands of years have done so so powerfully. Also to acknowledge Brother Keenan from Roan, whose beautiful music we are graced by in the intros and outros for the show. So thank you to Brother Keenan and do check him out. Such sweet, reminding tones and links to his platforms in the show notes. And do make sure to connect with me and leave any comments on my Facebook or Instagram page at Jeffrey underscore. And check out the links in the show notes. This show is completely funded by listeners just like you. So if you feel generous and wish to be part of nourishing these inquiries we're exploring, you can leave a once-off donation or soon subscribe to my community membership. All the show notes, resources, and donations are all at spacesbetweenpodcast.com. Until next time, beautiful one, we can't rush our way back. Notice the connections and tend to the sweet spaces between. Lots of love. Thank you.